This episode of the Royal Ramble is dedicated to the memory of Terry Funk. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. When I hear that trumpet sound, I'm gonna rise right out of the ground. Ain't no grave can hold my body down. Well, look way down the river. What do you think I see? I see a thing. Oh, let me tell you something, Jim Ross, and you simple-minded people. I had a dream last night. Oh, yes, and it was a beautiful dream. I dreamed that I was on the front porch of the Double Cross Ranch, and my father, who's long since gone, was there in a swing, swinging with me, and up drove a long black limousine, and the left front fender was dinted in, and the door opened and out stepped a beautiful lady, and my daddy said, woman, what happened to your left front fender? And she says, I ran over some kind of an animal on the road. I don't know what it was. My daddy said, well, what did it look like? And she says, well, it had great big ears. And it had nostrils, big, huge nostrils, about five inches apart. And it had horse teeth. And it smelled real bad. And my daddy said, my world, girl, you must have ran over a jackass. And I said, what did it smell like? She said it smelled like hairspray and cheap cologne. I said, woman, you didn't run over any jackass. You ran over Ric Flair. Is he dead? She says, no, but the last time I saw him, he was running scared. Well, let me tell you something, Ric Flair. You look at me in the eye because I am looking at you. You realize that you must live not in the future because there is none you must live in the past give up that belt or i'll stick your neck out one more time for me stick it out for me flair you gutless individual i'm talking to you That's enough. stick it out there are men there are legends and then there's terry funk what can I say about a man that hasn't already been said? How do I even begin to summarize his legendary career and fully capture and emphasize what a truly magnificent athlete and human being he really was? Well, I'm going to try my best. I first laid eyes on the Funker through archival footage from WrestleMania 2, which I had rented from my local video store. I think it was around the year 1994. I was only 10 years old at the time and not fully clued into the inside world of the wrestling business. I mean, people all around me were telling me that it was fake, and I just kind of accepted that without even really knowing what that truly meant. But to those people, I felt like saying, if you think it's fake, you should watch a Terry Funk match or promo, because then you might not be so sure. In that match, he teamed with his brother Dory, who was known as Hoss Funk in the WWF, and they took on the makeshift team of Tito Santana and the Junkyard Dog. Even at such a young age, I was blown away by both Funks, especially the younger one, Terry. He had such a natural charisma, and I felt that he was almost born to do this. And I don't think I'm alone in this, but I really couldn't picture him doing anything else. 
Sure, he did a couple of movies, but I never really felt like that world suited him, at least not nearly as much as the wrestling business. I mean this in a totally complimentary way, but he was such a master manipulator, and the one thing he was always able to manipulate was human emotion. He could make you laugh one minute and then cry the next without even blinking an eye. He was a sports entertainer before the term ever existed, but he was also a wrestler in the truest definition of the word. Terry was always great at suspending your disbelief. You'd be like, well I know most of that stuff is fake, but then looking at this guy I'm not so sure. He was without question one of the greatest workers and talents to ever do this, and even though I never met nor knew the man personally, I'm sure there is a long line of legends who had worked with him that would back me up on that. I remember writing an article about pro wrestling announcers, and while I was never able to speak with Terry personally, he was nice enough to contribute some quotes through Greg Oliver that put that story over the top as one of the best pieces I had ever written. If you google my name and the word announcers, you might find the article that I wrote for Slam Wrestling over 10 years ago. I spoke with the best of the best from Jim Ross to Paul Heyman to Larry Sabisco, and as I said, Funk contributed some thoughts as well. But that just goes to show how truly talented Funk really was, in that he can make such smooth transitions from wrestler to announcer, heel to babyface, and do it at the snap of a finger. Before doing this show, I promised myself I wouldn't go full on Mark here and gush about one of my all-time favorites, but I really can't help it. He was one of the guys that kept me interested in wrestling for so long, even at times that felt like I was the only one watching. However, right now, I'm going to try my best to summarize the rest of his career, and I invite you all to join me as we jump in the Wayback Machine and journey all the way back to where it all started. He entered this world on June 30th, 1944, the son of the legendary Dory Funk Sr. and Dorothy Culver. And since birth, he was pretty well surrounded by pro wrestling. It's all he ever knew. He was born in Hammond, Indiana, but the family relocated to Amarillo, Texas at the end of the Second World War. After graduating high school, Funk attended West Texas A&M University, then known as West Texas State University where he competed in amateur wrestling and football. He began his professional wrestling career in 1965 working in his father's promotion down in Amarillo called Western State Sports. He competed regularly in both singles matches and in tags with his brother Dory, and these guys were money makers almost since the get-go, competing against the likes of Ernie Ladd and Hank James. The younger Funk moved on to championship wrestling from Florida in 1970, and by 75 he won his first world championship, defeating Jack Briscoe for the NWA title as a substitute when his brother Dory was unable to appear. As champion, he faced a who's who of the wrestling business and took on such legends as Dusty Rhodes, Giant Baba, and Pat O'Connor, in addition to rematches with Briscoe. He also defended the belt internationally in places such as Australia, Japan, and Singapore. He eventually dropped it in my great city of Toronto to another legend, Handsome Harley Race. In the early 80s, Funk competed in the Continental Wrestling Association and was involved in a bitter feud with Jerry the King Lawler. Some of that story was told in Jerry Lawler's documentary DVD that the WWE put out a few years ago and one of the highlights was the empty arena match that they had. 
It was one of the examples of what a great worker Funk really was, as not only was he able to make transitions from babyface to heel, announcer to pro wrestler, and even singles to tags as I explained earlier, but he was also able to wrestle multiple styles, including the one that today's fans call hardcore, and this match was a perfect example of that as Funk tried to end it by attempting to rip Lawler's eye out with a piece of broken 2x4. But it was Lawler who ended up turning the tables, kicking Funk's elbow, causing him to take the shot in his own eye, and Funk did a masterful job of selling it. Funk continued to establish his hardcore legacy over in Japan between 1972 and 1991, engaging in some brutal battles with the likes of Abdullah the Butcher, Bruiser Brody, and the original Sheik, Ed Farhat. As I explained earlier, the WWF is where I first became familiar with Funk. He only worked there for about a year in the mid-80s, and his best WWF run was still to come, but at that time, he was famous enough to be booked in world title matches against Hulk Hogan. Funk had a memorable run in WCW as well by the late 80s. He was part of the JTEX Corporation under the tutelage of Gary Hart. I remember again through archival footage that he was initially used as an announcer as his wrestling career was seemingly winding down. Along with Jim Ross, he called basically the entire rivalry and series of matches between Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat, a series that is to this day regarded as one of the best of all time. If you haven't seen any of those matches, I urge you to find them somewhere. A couple of the better ones were on the Ultimate Ric Flair Collection DVD, but they were really all pretty great. Anyway, at the end of the feud, Flair had recaptured the belt from Steamboat and was set for a post-match interview with Jim Ross, during which Funk entered the ring, saying that he suddenly feels like wrestling again, and then challenged Flair to face him for the world title. Flair quickly declined, and Funk was offended that Flair was being so dismissive, so he dropped him with one of his quick hands, and then proceeded to pile-drive Flair onto the ringside table, breaking Flair's neck as part of the storyline. As I said, I had only seen this angle through archival footage, but it was so amazing to me that they were easily able to flip the script and suddenly make Flair the good guy and Funk the bad guy, which again goes to show how truly talented each of them were. During this angle, Flair also made reference to the fact that Funk was an actor, which was completely true. He was one of the first to make the transition from the squared circle to the silver screen, sharing scenes with Hollywood greats like Patrick Swayze and Sylvester Stallone. Funk and Flair engaged in one of the most brutal on-screen rivalries of all time. They wrestled each other for the title at that year's Great American Bash event, and then Funk teamed with the Great Muda to take on Flair and Sting in a Thunder Cage match at the first Halloween Havoc. During this feud, there was also a controversial angle where Funk attacked Flair and tried to suffocate him with a plastic bag, an angle that was often referenced by Dave Meltzer in his Observer newsletter. The feud culminated in an I Quit match in Troy, New York, where those words were literally forced out of Funk's mouth. Funk not only put over Flair's dreaded figure four leg lock submission hold, but he also further cemented Flair as the ultimate babyface in this encounter. Shortly afterwards, Funk wrestled for the USWA, but then returned to WCW for a match with Tully Blanchard, and stuck around as part of a heel stable led by Colonel Robert Parker against the Rhodes family. This feud culminated in the War Games match in 94. It was Funk's first War Games, and it was a memorable one as he was at one point trapped between the two rings, and I honestly didn't think he'd ever get out of there. Funk returned to Japan in the mid-90s and participated in the infamous King of the Deathmatch tournament put on by the International Wrestling Association of Japan. 
This is where items like barbed wire, broken glass, and metal chains were all introduced. I don't want to say that these things were introduced to pro wrestling at the time because I really don't know the history of that. But many a talent was probably made famous, or let's say infamous, during these brutal encounters, including Funk's protege Mick Foley, then known to wrestling fans as Cactus Jack. The two of them not only had their bodies wrapped in barbed wire, but some of that barbed wire was also actually connected to wooden boards that had time bombs attached to them. I'm not gonna go on record to say all of this was legit, because I wasn't there, but with guys like Terry Funk and Mick Foley, you'd really never know. They were both tremendous workers. Funk was so gifted in and out of the ring, and he was able to reinvent himself, which I think is what every wrestler has to do to stay relevant. He later joined Todd Gordon's Eastern Championship Wrestling, which later morphed into Extreme Championship Wrestling out of Philadelphia, operated under the creative guidance of Paul Heyman, and Funk was one of the creative masterminds behind the company's success as well. I admired many things about Terry Funk, but perhaps one of the things that stood out above all else is that he was always forward-thinking. He was always willing to work with and put a younger talent over, because he knew that his time in wrestling was winding down, and he largely contributed to the future of the business. He transitioned from a mat-based traditional wrestling style into a more violent style of wrestling, and he worked programs with some of the hottest stars of the 90s, including Shane Douglas, The Sandman, Cactus Jack, Sabu, and Tommy Dreamer, many of whom Funk put on the map. Funk also main-evented the first-ever ECW pay-per-view Barely Legal, defeating Raven to win the ECW world title. After Funk helped establish the ECW brand, he returned to the WWF with a new character, Chainsaw Charlie. During this run, he teamed with his friend Mick Foley to help put over a newer, younger tag team, the New Age Outlaws. There was an angle where Foley and Funk were strapped inside a dumpster and rolled right off the stage. Even though I was older and my adolescent mind had matured a little more by then, I still couldn't help but think that some of this was real. And it was mostly due to Funk's selling job. Some would say that he perhaps oversold this. Many people often joke about Funk's several wrestling retirements, but I don't think anyone ever complained about him continuing to wrestle. He even wrestled his way into the 21st century as a member of WCW's new hardcore division. I wouldn't say this was nearly as extreme as Japan or ECW, but one of the things that stood out during this run was his brief stint as a member of the Old Age Outlaws, along with Arn Anderson, Paul Orndorff, and Larry Sabisco. I don't know why, but I thought this angle was hilarious. It wasn't during WCW's glory years, but it was one of the few things I actually enjoyed about WCW at the time. After WCW folded in 2001, Funk wrestled across independent promotions, including Ring of Honor, where he engaged in several battles with guys like CM Punk and Steve Carino. In 2004, he also briefly competed in TNA, teaming with the Sandman against CM Punk and Julio De Niro, collectively known as The Gathering. And then Funk participated at the second ECW One Night Stand event in 2006, teaming with Tommy Dreamer in a feud against Mick Foley and Edge. I still remember his shoot promo on Foley, which I believe happened on the Go Home show, where he insulted Foley's wife and children, trying to get him to agree to the match. It was brilliant psychology. Terry and his brother Dory were inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2009, which took place in their home state of Texas, and they were inducted by one of their longtime rivals, Dusty Rhodes. His last match took place in 2017 at the age of 73. 
He teamed with the Rock and Roll Express against Jerry Lawler, Lawler's son Brian Christopher, and Doug Gilbert. No matter how you choose to remember Terry Funk, I think he certainly created a handful of memories to last us all a lifetime to reflect on. He was a great wrestler, a great talker, a great actor, a great worker, and an all-around great human being. So with that, I'm not going to end this episode in the traditional way. Instead, I will end with a simple rest in peace funker.